This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, editorial director of entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. Hey, everyone. Today, we have two guests. The first is Emily White, who is a partner at Collective Entertainment and founder of the I Voted Festival. She's the author of the number one Amazon bestselling, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams, and is a host of a podcast with the same name. Our other guest is Mike Errico, who is like a delicious Italian meal in that sometimes he repeats on you. Mike is a musician and lecturing professor who was recently on this show talking about his new book, Music, Lyrics, and Life, a field guide for the advancing songwriter. We are going to talk all things making money by making music. Emily, Mike, welcome. Thanks for having us. Great to see you. Great to see you again, Mr. Mike. Now, Emily, Mike actually recommended that I have you on the show. And as I thought about it, I realized it's probably going to be much more useful for musicians to hear two people who actually know what they're talking about uh, discuss the music business rather than just answering questions from a dumbass like me. But I'm going to lob out the first one and see where you guys take it, because we're hearing so much about Spotify, calls to delete it for various reasons. Is Spotify a musician's friend or foe? Mike? I was to go? just going to say, go? Emily, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a double-edged sword, uh, certainly, from the, uh, from the creator perspective, I think. Uh, but also, I think it has shifted. And I think that's one of the main situations that are happen- that's happening with Spotify, is that it was a distributor. But the thing with the whole Joe Rogan situation is that they have moved into a creator role. Would you say that's fair, Emily? Yeah, and um, I think I'm I'm just going to give my thoughts, which isn't necessarily friend or foe. I kind of view it as uh, past, present, and future. So in the past, we've had artists really upset about um, streaming rates. Most people know that. Um, in the present, you know, we have a company, Spotify, that was built off the backs of musicians. And now we have a very powerful and influential musician saying, I don't want to be on this channel. I don't want to be on Fox News with, you know, this person. I'm, I'm just using that as an example, like yeah. if it was a television network or something. And when you look to the future, it's really interesting because um, when I started distributing my podcast, I asked around and folks were like, Anchor, Anchor, get on Anchor um, for distribution. And Anchor is owned by Spotify. And I thought, oh, okay, we'll see how this goes. And so Spotify is invested in Anchor as a podcast creation tool. And, you know, podcasts are essentially royalty, royalty-free content for them forever. Mm-hmm. So it actually, you know, the deal that podcasters get in distribution Uh, makes the deal that musicians get look pretty sweet. So it's very obvious to me that um, they're going in that direction because it's cheaper uh, in theory, you know, to make podcasts and have Anchor as a podcast creation tool 
out there. And that's just going to cannibalize, you know, the attention and the time that we have to listen to music on Spotify, which is what the company um, was built on. So that's kind of how I view it. I, I personally canceled my Spotify premium account. Um, it doesn't mean I won't work with them professionally, but that's going to be up to the artists we work with as well as my teams. If they deem that um, working with Spotify uh, is important as far as market share and audience reach, which I understand. Yeah. Emily, so, may I ask, um, what did you switch to? I haven't switched yet. I have one more podcast episode to distribute. And then we're going to launch an I Voted Festival podcast. And I uh, flipped that to my team. I'm like, I actually just reached out to Bon Iver's manager who gave me a good suggestion for a podcast distributor. Um, and that led to like 20 more. So we're kind of researching and, and figuring it out. But, but to be honest, if my team at iVoted Festival is like, Anchor's really the best for distribution, I will listen to them. Like, I still have to listen to them professionally, but Emily, as a human individual person, is not giving money to Spotify anymore. That's actually what I meant uh, to ask, was as a person, you have, you have canceled your Spotify premium account. Wh where did you go? Have you, have you moved to another um, this is lazy, but I have a premium account with YouTube, um, which also means I have a YouTube music account. They actually pay less than Spotify. My real answer is that I wrote an op-ed for Billboard in like 2012 on building a sustainable uh, streaming platform. So if Neil Young or anyone else wants to partner with me and invest in that, um, I really think that um, there's a few things there. One, over the years, artists seem to be really upset about the monthly price point, right? Um, and I don't know what the answer is. Should it be $4.99? Should it be $20? I think that all the artists and rights holders should vote on that um, and, and come up with an average there. And then I actually don't think the fractions of a penny per stream is very sustainable. Um, so I'd like to see all the money split evenly between master and publishing rights holders and distribute out, distribute, uh, doled out equally that way. And then I'd also like to see a Bandcamp-esque component in there where um, fans can pay what they want and that money goes, you know, the, you know, 85% or whatever the majority of that money uh, is, goes to the artist and rights holder as well as, as well as the fans' data, which is why Spotify and tech companies are the most profitable in the world. So that's a long-winded answer to say, I'd like to build myself, build it, build the solution myself with all my spare time and um, right, of millions course. of dollars to do for, so. For, for people who don't uh, know the, 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 the economics of it, can you talk about uh, what, what an artist will earn if someone plays their song on Spotify? Um, it, it completely depends on their situation. Um, it depends on if they're signed to a label, um, at the same time, you know, I know plenty of independent artists that actually make really great revenue on Spotify. So there's no clear answer. And I think that's why it's really confusing for fans. Right. And that's yeah. why I think we built a sustainable streaming platform, kind of the NPR-esque fan, right? The very like informed fan, because I've heard from fans my whole life, like, well, how do I support the artists the most? And there is, it, it just depends on the artist and what their rights are and what their situation is. And a lot of times a fan will say, well, I always buy merch from the artists because I want to support them directly. But if they're signed to a 360 deal with a major label, that's just going to recoup that, you know? So that's why I want to build a sustainable streaming platform, not only for artists, 
Um, but also so we can answer that question for fans because they actually really do care. And maybe right. Mike can answer your question a little more. Well, you might want to just backtrack a second on what a 360 deal actually is. Because sure. uh, maybe that that might be something that I know that Dan wants to know. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, probably 20 years ago, you would just sign just you would just sign your recording rights away to a record company, a, a major label in particular. And as things move to digital, um, major labels were like, oh, well, we're losing money to Napster and piracy. So now we want in on everything an artist does. We want to we want to own your rights to your merchandise. We want to own your rights to your publishing, which was published music publishing as songwriting. And that was very common. Um, we want to own your rights to your branding. Um, we want to own the 360 rights of your career. Got it. So what what um, you know, how how are musicians making money? these days? Like what, what are the revenues? What are the best revenue streams? I guess I would say for artists. Um, so the more you can go direct, the better. Uh, I really encourage artists to monetize their music before it's even out, um, through pre-orders. Uh, I just saw an artist named Kala post that he's made more on his pre-order this year through his album than he has on streaming um, over the past few years. And by the way, he does really well on streaming and I know he pays his monthly expenses through streaming. So, um, again, the reason tech companies are so powerful is they have all of our data. Mm. So when you run a pre-order campaign before your music is even out, um, you're collecting, you know, $10 or a hundred dollars per fan, depending on if you're running, you know, and you should be running, you know, higher end price points and, and really compelling packages. And then you're also getting that data in return uh, for your long-term use. So pre-orders are really compelling. And then Mike, I, I'd be really curious to get Mike's opinion on this. Almost every artist I talk to, you know, like artists hire me to consult for an hour or even students I'm meeting, the number one missing revenue stream I'm seeing is music publishing, which is collecting on um, their songwriting. And considering that's been a revenue stream, like, for all of our lives, it's it's sad and it blows my mind. So that that's a missing one for sure. And I'll, this is really inside baseball, but the reason that happens is when you sign up for what's called a performing rights organization, which is ASCAP or BMI, um, the songwriter is asked to create a publishing designee. So that's why they think their music publishing is being collected on. So that's really long-winded. I think artists need to utilize pre-orders way more um, and, you know, have compelling high-end price points. Also be mindful of cost of goods sold um, because I, I managed uh, Amanda Palmer who raised the most money ever for a musician on Kickstarter, over a million dollars. Um, I actually wasn't involved in that campaign, but it didn't do as well as it looked because they were shipping like stone statues. So maybe start with like, well, something creative or digital, but also like posters are super cheap to press up and you can charge more if you autograph them. You can charge even more if you personally autograph them. And then, like I said, I, I'd be curious to know what Mike thinks because I'm stunned how many songwriters are, are not collecting on their music publishing in full. So that's a very obvious missing revenue stream. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned Amanda because um, I had her as a guest at a, at a class at Yale and she, she was on her way from Harvard Business School in Boston then she went down I-95 South to New Haven and came to my class on her way to a show in New York. But at, at, at the Yale class, she was like, 
she had just done this million dollar thing and she was like she just talked a lot about postage she was like you have no idea so i got a million dollars and maybe set the post office got like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> because she was like i was having to ship uh, uh record players like like an actual record player to australia right and that's a hundred dollar gift or whatever it is but it took 98 or maybe even 105 dollars to get it there um so that there was that uh the publishing thing is is really interesting you you mentioned the uh performing rights organizations um they do collect i mean they do collect some stuff but it's a very inefficient system and i honestly it's very i well this is cynical but it is purposefully inefficient i think for a lot of a lot of reasons there is something we refer to as the black box which is where things like publishing royalties and writer share royalties actually end up um because they can't find the artists that they uh that the money belongs to right hmm. um so some of that publishing loss is on the on the artist you know it's it's on them to do the kind of boring business which is the music business you know and and so when in my classes i try and let them know like when you write a song you're writing two things you're you're writing a piece of art but you're also creating this piece of publishing and you need to be responsible and honor both of those um or you don't get paid you know um so that's something and so what are the sources of publishing uh it can it can be uh the streaming services it can be downloading buying that kind of stuff but it can also be sync which is uh attaching to uh tv shows or uh commercial music advertising you uh, online web advertising there's a and there are lots of different uh avenues for that nationally and internationally um finding that stuff uh can be really difficult and impossible if you are not actually registering things correctly um there are services that help uh, places like song trust is one that i think is universally available <clears throat> in the country and and what that does is they go out and they're like you know we're going to find you the money that you can't find uh you know huh? if you're hot in portugal you don't know yeah and you are hot in portugal <laughs> i didn't you know, know you're, that hot, you're hot yeah. <laughs> uh, but um but song trust doesn't need to tell you that but they do need to tell some of the artists that so those are those are different ways to to find that publishing money so emily um i i uh i heard you speaking at, uh on another podcast and you talked about the idea to uh, get your art together. Um, so uh, two questions, if, if you could like talk a little bit about that and then also how soon is too soon for an artist to even start considering the business aspect of things or is it never too soon to do that? Yeah, great question. And I'd love to get Mike's thoughts on this. So. The first chapter in my book and and really the one of the first podcast episodes is called Get Your Art Together because there's no point of doing all these other steps if your art isn't great. 
And you know, in your heart, your soul, your creative spirit, when your music is ready for the world and ready to be shared. And that's when you move on to chapter two, um, which I believe is pre-recording marketing foundation, uh, email list, text message club, and social media. And I, I take you through the modern release cycle um, in the book and on uh, the podcast. So, um, you know, I'm sure this happens to Mike all the time, although it makes a little more sense as a songwriting professor, but I hear from artists uh, either online or in pre-pandemic times at conferences, really excited to share their music with me and saying, but I need to work on my vocals or I need a new drummer. And it's like, well, then get that to get, I know they're like excited to share it with an industry person or whatever, right. but at the same time, and, and Image and Heap was on my podcast and said the same thing. Who cares what we think? You know, it's like what connects with an audience is what's authentic. And so that's going to be what's true to yourself. Not, um, are you trying to impress Mike or me? Or I've had artists say, I feel like it would be perfect for this label. It's like, well, did you write it for them? Um, what I see, especially in the modern music industry where, you know, you can build your own fan base and we have, you know, an infinite amount of artists is the artists that are making, again, that music that's true to their heart, soul, and spirit. Like, they, you know, you know intuitively when you're ready to share your music. So don't don't force it and don't even bother reading the other chapters until you have that piece in place. Otherwise, the other stuff's not going to work. Yes. Um, you you hit something really Interesting, um, because I, what, one of the places I teach it is the uh, NYU Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, right? So there's all they do is that, right? So they have like, there is sort of, it's not really competitive, but like they just want to get out there, right? And the first thing that we try to preach to them with limited success is patience. Right. And that's the patience is kind of what you're talking about. Um, patience butts up against, first of all, the getting the art together. But second of all, the ease of distribution now with something like Spotify. Um, DistroKid is a is a distributor of of music and content. Um, they just put out a tweet this morning, I think it was. And they just like floated out a question. They're like, hey, kids. Do you guys have unfinished music out there on your hard drive? And it's like, oh no. Now they're coming after not only the EP I've put together, but the four EPs that suck that I decided I'm not gonna put out because they're not in the quality game, right? They're in the distribution game. Right. Um, so, I mean, if you just dumped your your hard drive contents onto Spotify or something like that, that is incredible dilution of your brand, right? I mean, that just, there may be good stuff. There may be needles in that haystack, but wow, that's a lot of hay too, right? <laughs> right. More coming up from our guests, but first a word from our sponsor. No one succeeds alone. Even the best entrepreneurs know when it's time to bring in an outside expert. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. You can check work samples, client reviews, and more 
to make sure you're hiring the right pro for your business and there's no cost until you hire. Plus, you only pay for work you approve. So whether you're looking to hire a single pro for a project or an entire team to scale your business, Upwork can help you reach your goals. And however you hire, Upwork is available to help you keep things running smoothly with 24-7 support, letting you stay focused on what matters, your business. Find the right talent for whatever your business needs are at Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. And we're back. How did, how did, Mike, how does this compare to like when you were first starting out? I mean, these platforms obviously didn't exist. Um, was the, the difficulty or, well, you tell me if it was more difficult, I'm going to assume it was a little bit more difficult to mu- get your music out there to audiences. Did that, did that challenge actually benefit you as an artist? Like, what do you make of that? I mean, that's like the million dollar question, right? So like I put a record out, my first, my debut, whatever, was in 1999. My first show was Woodstock 99, which we all know burned to the floor. Um, and th- I think it was that summer, that same summer, Napster hit the cover of Time Magazine. Or It, w- it was like one of those things. Wow. And so um you get this incredible increase of attention and you get, you know, these stories of like, oh, the attention has converted into massive success uh, in live shows for, you know, for bands like, say, Guster or like other, you know, other uh, Dave Matthews or like, you know, people where they came out of the Grateful Dead trading uh, of bootlegs kind of uh, ethos. Um uh, but also, like, I would sit there at my merch table and I would be signing blank burned uh, CDs, you know, of, of people who didn't understand that that was weird because it was actually good, you know? Yeah. So they would be like, well, I'll buy it. I'll get it signed. And then you just burn it and and here. And they would give it to me to sign, right? <laughs> While they're working out how they're, screwing me in front of me <laughs> as fans right right because they're buying it right yeah, yeah. Like they're doing it as fans so wow. i mean that's that's like the moment that i where i started right and yeah, so yeah. there was a precipitous decline at that at that moment right uh, straight through uh straight through the odds can i can i give the teenagers perspective on that because i was in I, before you continue because i was a junior in high school during mm-hmm. that time and for what it's worth i remember thinking um okay i don't have this because i i was really into brit pop and i was getting all these uh you know b-sides and stuff that weren't necessarily available in the u.s and i remember thinking like i would pay 10 20 30 i would pay 50 dollars a month for this service and so i know hindsight is twenty twenty. But instead of, you know, embracing technology and monetizing it, um, our industry decided to sue fans. But please continue, Mike. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's true. And there, and there was another thing about the immediacy of availability um, that in New York through the aughts, kind of, it was like they were, it was sort of like killing scenes before they got a moment to, to really gestate in private. Right. You know? So you got like instant successes and uh, and then 
people would be thrown up on stage, not fully formed yet. Like you said, the art was not together, but the distribution was frictionless. Right. So you would get people just like, you know, selling their 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 demos basically on on you know Napster and then iTunes and then Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there was actually a a difficulty in getting your art together because the scenes were getting jumped on so quickly because they were also getting noticed because of the data that they could get online, right? The Shazams of the world were outing uh, burgeoning scenes um, that didn't get a chance to like really grow. Huh. Um, and so, you know, just speaking as, as someone who has, zero to very little, but mostly zero musical talent, you know, but a, a lover of music. You know, I think back to when I was, when I was a teenager in 1937 and when, you know, I would read an article that, you know, the greatest albums or read a review of something that sounded good, then I'd go to the store and buy it. And, you know, maybe six times out of 10, I'd be like, uh, I don't, this sucks. I don't like this. <laughs> so it was like, it, you know, it was a real risk, you know, plunking down like 15 bucks for something that you never really had a chance to hear before. And then the Virgin store had the headphones. So you actually could listen to it a little bit, but you know, as a, the, the ability to sample music uh, as a fan of music has been great, but it also puts in your head that I should be able to just listen to anything I want at any point instantly and not pay for it, I guess, is, is the sucky side of that equation. For sure. I don't know question there. I think, just something I think that's, that's why, again, I was 15 years old or whatever, but I think that's why I wish the industry would have charged $50 a month for this amazing technology in 1999. And I think we'd be in a better place now than free and, and 999 tiers. I think that would, yeah. in theory, would have solved some of those problems. But again, hindsight is totally 2020. Yeah. And, and you know, and just to go back to the idea that you were talking about before is like, I am a music fan and I do want to support people that I like. Uh, and I don't really know how to do that. You know, like, as you, as you've explained, any way that I thought I was supporting them maybe really isn't. Right. I, I should say, as far as the LP goes, I, I know that you you bought, you know, I don't know, Blue Moves by Elton John or, or whatever it was <laughs> that, you, that you didn't like or whatever it was. There's a technological component to that also, because there was a, they had an LP, a 33 and a third thing that they had to build. Right. Uh, back in the back in the way back days, there was a 45 or a wax roll. And those were that was a singles sort of uh mentality right? right so you put out a single then you put out a 45 and the b-side is actually uh the bad tune right it was always like the b-side's always like mm, you know also and also ran kind of thing people now call it like double a-sides if they're really awesome like the beatles put out double a-sides um but then there was the there was the lp and you were giving someone too much real estate they, a lot of the artists that made records didn't have a record worth of things to say right it's not like a book where you know if i have 150 pages worth of talking i stop at page 150 it's not like you have 700 pages yeah and you're gonna have to fill most of them you know (laughs) you know um 
So there was a technological problem, but that also dilute in the same way, diluted the quality of, of, the, uh, of the art because you were, it was literally filler. Like they called it filler to your face. You know? Right, right, right. Um, and then you get people like Sum 41 who had, a, had an album called All Killer, No Filler. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and it's short, right? The album is short. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of that, because there's no filler. That's such a great point. And, um, you know, sometimes people complain that artists like just put out tracks or singles or whatever. Um, and I, I hadn't really thought about it in that context. Right. Um, but I, at the end of the day, I think artists should be putting out, um, what, again, what, whatever's true to their heart, soul, and spirit. And it could be a single, it could be a 40 song space opera. Um, so yeah, that's interesting that, you know, people, I, I don't know, between the distro kid tweet and saying, give us more filler, give us whatever's on yeah, your heart. Oh, yeah, I guess right. it's always been there. Because it costs to put your filler up, right? right. So distro kid will charge for you to put your garbage up there. And then what happens is who cares? What do they care? Well, right. I think what is happening, again, being really inside baseball here is because um, they have, I think for 40 bucks a year, you can distribute as many things as possible. Mm -hmm. And the more releases they get in there, the more they can brag to their investors and their fundraising like, oh, we distributed that many releases this year. So I, I think it's that uh, just, just to be a little technical. Fair. The, the thing that I always uh, uh, bore to death my, my children with is uh, the, the fear that they'll never have to experience, which is walking into a local record shop, like not not a, you know, not Sam Goody's or something, but a real local record shop. And then trying to ask the, the guy behind the counter a question and him just like destroying you because he knows you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. I will never forget when I wanted to get a box set of Robert Johnson that I had read about. Mm. And I accidentally asked about Eric Johnson. Oh, boy. And uh, this guy just destroyed me. <laughs> like, <laughs> couldn't believe the, the, the mistake I had made and I should leave his store immediately. Yeah. And the kids these days will never have that. Well, they can read, read and watch uh, Read High Fidelity and watch the original film. I haven't seen the TV show to understand that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know what I do is I, I actually, I used to do that. You mentioned the Virgin Megastore kiosks with the yeah. headphones. I used to listen to that. I used to listen religiously all the way down the line, whatever. And I love that. And I don't know if this is age or whatever, but I like talking to people. Maybe that's an age problem. Uh, but uh, having that kind of conversation, a curating kind of conversation, I just moved from record stores to bookstores. And now mm -hmm. I do that at bookstores. Like, and it's creepy and they probably think I'm like, you know, do you have anything romantic, you know, or, <laughs> or something like that. But like, I want to know, I want to know. And I don't want to know from like Amazon is like, oh, you bought toilet paper here. How's J.K. Rowling or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't want like that kind of thing. I want somebody to look me up and down and go, hmm, check this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's something there's something to that. And, uh, you know, it happens everywhere. I mean, it happens at, the, you know, the Honda dealership. Right. Like that happened to me. I got like a sport Honda Accord and I didn't want it. My wife didn't want it. And they looked at me. They're like, well, 
you're a dude and a father, so you're going to want to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> go fast. You know what I mean? So we got like the rally sport version of the Honda. And I'm like, I can't put the baby seat in the back on it. You know I mean? Like, so there's stuff like that that used to happen at the record store with the Eric Johnson, Robert Johnson bit. Yeah. And it happens now, but it happens other places too. So they do right, have, right. There's faith. I have faith in the children that there are people they can still talk to. And 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 get belittled by. So uh, yeah. also, yeah, and yes. get the wrong car. <laughs> right, right. So uh, as we uh, round this out, I, I think this has been. Uh, I mean, for again, I'm not a musician, but I'm learning an awful lot from you guys. But what what would you say? You know, you both you deal both deal with the the youths um, as um, you know. To what's like the kind of Mike, you already kind of touched on it, I think, a little bit. But what is that sort of like starting point advice? Like, really, if you just listen to this piece of advice, things will probably go better for you. I think you said Mike. I'm not sure. Otherwise, I'm happy. To uh, well, I said Mike. Mike had touched on that okay. a little bit before. But yeah, Emily, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, well, create great art. Like I said, um, you know, you have to hone your craft and, and know when you're ready to share it with the world. And then it's not a very, uh, you know, exciting answer, but it's data collection, um, collecting email addresses, mobile phone numbers and bonus points if you can get postcode or zip code from your fans, because then you can communicate with them forever directly about your releases and your shows and not get caught in algorithms. Or if you built your uh, career on MySpace, obviously uh, social media platforms evolve. So um, collecting as much data as possible. That's how Amanda raised a million dollars on Kickstarter. Um, You know, I, I started working with her band, the Dresden Dolls, when I was in college and tour managed them and did merch and all that. And you could barely say hi to the two members of the band or myself without one of us saying, uh, would you like to sign up for our email list? And it's also a nice breaker at the merch table when people are kind of mulling around or you can give them a sticker or button or badge or whatever. But anyway, um, I think the Dolls email list is up to like 100,000 names. And that that's how Amanda is able to communicate directly with her audience and uh, monetize those kind of numbers. Well, I, just to jump in before you say something, Mike, but uh, I think that's such a great piece of advice because I, I think people who consider themselves an artist, like it's almost like they're, they feel like that's gross or it's, that's not me or that's like corporate or whatever. And uh, it just doesn't feel right. I think probably um, people maybe don't have those same um, feelings quite as much as they used to, but you know, I feel like at, at one point an artist would like be disgusted to be th- even thinking about business. Yeah. And I think that's caused a lot of problems for people, but at the same time, it's like, I have yoga teachers with amazing email lists and I don't think anyone ever taught them how to do that. They just realize like, this is how I can communicate, especially now my online classes to these students who are interested in practicing. Right. Right. And Mike, do you concur or is there, is there another nugget you could offer uh, people? Um, I no, I really do agree uh, with that. Um, in, in my own book, I kind of make fun of this a little bit by trying to tell them, um, you know, do you understand how huge I was on MySpace? On MySpace? You know, like <laughs> I try to like, and I, I try to put that together for, for, for on a creative level, but also on a business level. So like on a business level, if you're building your house on shifting sand, that's not good. 
right? Right. But I go to my I go to my students' shows and they're always like, check out my Instagram, you know? And it's like, no, no, no. Give me your phone number. Give me something tighter uh, than that. On the flip side with the art, I'm like, can you imagine if you have written a timeless classic that also happens to mention MySpace? At this now, at this right. Point, you have you have dated and and put this thing into a time space, especially in a time where technology is actually moving incredibly fast. Right. So like I could talk about like hit me up on Vine, and it's like no, you know, yeah, like, yeah, right, it's long right. gone, you know. But like, so if you can maybe stay away from the shifting sand of those social media platforms, creatively and business wise. Um, I think you're in a stronger position for a longer term career. I would say definitely use them, but use them to drive traffic to your email list and text message. Know what the goal is. Old style. Handshake. An old handshake. And remember that? (laughs) Buying your food in a barrel. I always mention a friendster to people, but the students definitely don't know what that is anymore. Right, right. Well, I always think about that too, that that became, you know, is obviously like such a punchline, like, oh yeah, check me out on friendster. But it's like, you know, Facebook's sort of going that way. You know, like uh, yes. My kids already make fun of Facebook that like it's for old people. So uh, you know, that I think that shifting sands uh analogy is pretty good. You should write a song about that, Mike. Shifting sands. Pick up that guitar right now. Boba's hands. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We better stop before this gets out of control. <laughs> uh, so I want to thank you both for uh, a lot of like great information here. Emily White, you could check out her book. Uh, how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Anything else, Emily, they should be looking out for? Yeah, um, check out I Voted Festival. It'll be on the U.S.'s National Election Day on November 8th. Um, I haven't announced this yet, but we've confirmed. We have over 160 uh, artists confirmed or interested um, for our massive webcast. Our 2020 version was the largest digital concert in history. Um, To get in, you need to RSVP with a selfie uh, from outside your polling place. So you can head to ivotedconcerts.com and sign up for our email list to stay in the loop. All right. Awesome. 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 And, and Mr. Mike, as we mentioned before, you've got this great book, Music, Lyrics, and Life, a field guide for the advancing songwriter. Anything else people should be looking out for in the Erico universe? Um, sure. I mean, I, I'm going to be, you know, I'm touring the book a little bit. Uh, I'm uh, On March 10th, uh, the Virginia Festival of the Book will be having a songwriting um, uh, workshop that I'll be, I'll be putting together. It's free. Uh, just sign up. Uh, and again, my website, erico.com. Please give me all of your personal data, all of it, uh, your PIN number, let's see what else, social security, et cetera, or just your email would be fine. Mother's maiden name, all that stuff. All right, great. Well, that's uh, awesome. So great talking to you both. Thanks for the time and for the info. Go check out their stuff. They're good people. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Don't make me beg people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.